At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and today we're being joined by both a guest and, of course, Dr. Beth Dupree, who is joining us remotely this afternoon, and we're always thrilled to have her. Um, My guest today is Susan Jacobs, and Susan is a writer, producer, and founder of Blues On Consulting in New York City. She is um, has done an extensive amount of work uh, in the field of publicity and PR and worked with many notables in the uh, music industry um, and in marketing communications in general. And uh, I'm thrilled to have her joining us today. But we're going to start with Dr. Dupree, um, who had a very exciting weekend and, and wants to share some of her um, experiences with us. So welcome back to the show, Beth. Hey, Susan, did you have a good week? I did. I did. I think we're all thrilled with the weather we're going to be having this whole week coming yeah, I up. Think I, I brought this back from Orlando with I me. I thought yesterday. you did. I'm just going to take credit for it right now because so, yeah. this is pretty much the way it was when I left Orlando after uh, about six days in the sun. And uh, the conference, I know the last we spoke on air, I was heading on a plane to Orlando and spent um, the first day down there teaching a course on hidden scar surgery, which is um, not really, it's kind of a novel way to look at breast surgery in, in the sense that what we're trying to do is get obtain the same oncologic outcomes, like it's the same cancer operation just being very conscious of where we place the scars so that when women wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, they don't have the visible reminder constantly um, that they've had breast cancer. And so despite the fact that it's nothing new from a, you know, surgical perspective of how you actually treat the cancer, it's the process that we go through, you know, in order to hide that scar um, when we remove that cancer, to remove that visible um reminder to women. So it's kind of, it was kind of a cool process, and I, I, I enjoyed the course, and it was very, very well received by all the uh, physicians that came. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, one of the things that you um, spoke about was this, um, and we've talked about this before, but this risk reduction with holistic integration. And I, I want you to touch on that for a little bit and, and talk about what you shared with the group. Absolutely. Well, for those of you who don't know, I am um, board certified as a surgeon and as well as an integrative and holistic medicine physician, as are Dr. Kreischer and Dr. Crothers, two of my other partners. And the reason we chose to obtain additional um, certifications and training in integrative and holistic medicine is that breast cancer is one of the diseases that lifestyle modification across the board can um, 
prevent breast cancer. We know that only 25% of breast cancers have a genetic basis, and about 75% of women that get diagnosed have absolutely no family history. So it's so important for us to remember that, you know, through regular exercise, maintaining a healthy BMI, eating a healthy diet, reducing alcohol consumption, and, you know, learning to de-stress, all of those aspects taken together can decrease the risk of a woman getting postmenopausal breast cancer by about 40%. And I think that was what was so amazing in this conference was that, you know, I had 1,500 surgeons from all around the world. There were 30 different countries represented. Listening to my, my lecture, which happened to follow the, the standard um, tamoxifen and arimidex for um, breast cancer prevention, the pills that we give to reduce the risk of breast cancer. And so my talk followed the medical oncologist talk, and what was amazing is afterwards the the flurry of attention and the physicians that were tracking me down to find out more and to learn more, they didn't realize how many prospective randomized studies, how many studies are out there that look at population health. And so it has a far more reaching um, field than just breast cancer because in these women that change their lives, they also decrease their risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So to me, this is, this is truly the, you know, has to be like the push for um, Western medical physicians to begin to look at the simple things that we can educate our patients about. And the real challenge is how do we find ways to support women you know, and men achieving a healthy way of life? And that's, that's really the challenge for physicians right now is how do we, you know, undo all of this automated, you know, processed food, lack of exercise, low movement society, and get back to a place where we can really create and shift, you know, how, we, how we're providing care for our patients. Yeah, it really is important. And I know that when we speak with Susan in, in a few minutes, she's going to be um, right on target with this topic because it's something that she uh, was not only raised with but um, practices herself today. You know, I understand that you've been asked to speak in India next year, and I wondered if it's on this topic. Well, absolutely. Um, believe it or not, in India and in Asia, China, Japan, um, the average age of breast cancer is much younger. It's between 40 and 50 at the age of diagnosis. And the thought is that because these countries are becoming westernized, they're changing their habits, they're changing their patterns. And unfortunately, women are being affected at a younger age. Um, I'm not sure exactly what topic I'm going to be speaking about in India, but the um, president of their uh, Breast Society um, was speaking at our conference, and I happened to have mentored um, Dr. Raghu Ram uh, when he was a fellow at the Royal College of Surgeons in England, and he came to the U.S. for some training, has gone back to India and created amazing programs in a, uh, you know, he calls it, it's the Indian solution for the Indian uh, problem because India does not have mass screening with mammography that we do in, in the U.S. And so over there, it was it's really, you know, kind of looking at it, how can he make the biggest difference in a country where the incidence of breast cancer is going up, and many, many women um, are not diagnosed until late in the stage of disease. So I'm very excited about heading to India next year with a um, contingent of surgeons from the American Society of Breast Surgeons. It's going to be a great opportunity to spread knowledge and wealth about how these lifestyle changes, which affect every woman around the country, around the world, actually, um, can impact the incidence of breast cancer. Yeah. You know, one of the things that was such a great uh, highlight um, for both you and, and the 
hospital um, is this new uh, machine, I guess I'll call it, to to help diagnose. And I know that you did an interview on CBS uh, that's going to air tonight. Right. Uh, I, yeah. Tell well, us about that. Yeah. Well, while, while I was down there, I also did a radio interview with um, with KYW and and. Um, Trying to really educate women that in in the year I think it was 2011 2012 many states passed a law that when you have a screening mammography that the hospitals or the radiology facilities are required to let women know what their breast density is and by breast density it's the um, comparison of the fatty tissue of the breast compared to the the fibrous elements of the breast. And there are women, about 40% of women, have incredibly dense breasts that do two things. Number one, just having that breast tissue increases the risk for getting breast cancer because it's proliferative. And secondly, it makes mammography much more difficult at identifying cancers at a preclinical or non-palpable, not able to be felt size. So what we've added at Holy Redeemer Women's Care, where I'm actually calling in from right now, is a uh, technology called automated breast ultrasound. We installed the GE um, A-Bus in the fall, and for women who fall into that category of incredibly dense breast tissue, they can get or obtain what's called an A-Bus, or a, it's a, basically a topographical map scan of their breast, and it helps us to identify um, small lesions before they could even be seen on a mammogram in these specifically dense-breasted patients. So it's very exciting to have access to this technology, and again, you know, having, having a hospital administration that is really focused on women and women's health care is wonderful because they see the value in bringing in new technology so we can provide a higher level of care that's actually less invasive because there's no radiation with the automated breast ultrasound. So our patients love it, and we use it as an adjunct. We use it in addition to mammography in our dense-breasted patients. So I feel very fortunate that, you know, um, it's 2015, and I'm in a practice with two other, well, we, there's three physicians, three other surgeons, but three of us who've been in practice the longest have all become board-certified in integrative medicine. So not only are we doing great on the Western medicine techno side of surgery, finding the cancers early, we're being able to guide our patients not just through the treatment and diagnosis of their disease, but into a place of health and wellness to decrease the risk of cancer coming back, um, to integrate all the other holistic aspects such as acupuncture and massage and guided imagery and, you know, yoga and um, aromatherapy, things that we know can truly make a difference in the quality of life of our patients. And, and in the end, you know, we, we care as much about the quality of our patients' lives, even more so than some of the statistics which only the quantity of life, and I think that was a really big take-home from um, all of this is that, you know, we really have to look at how our patients live their lives after a diagnosis of cancer and remember that, you know, helping them to be safe and alleviate fear has to be part of what we're gaining. So Yeah, absolutely. You know what, I want to bring Susan into the conversation. And again, for the listeners, we're being joined by Susan Jacobs. Susan is a writer, producer, and founder of Blues On Consulting in New York. Uh, welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. And I know that um, much of what Beth was speaking on relates to you. Um, and before we, you know, get into your story and uh, the work that you're doing with this new business, I, of course, wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of discuss with uh, Beth 
this whole topic of holistic um, practices and, and integration and where you have seen a benefit in your own life. Um, I know that you were diagnosed with hypothyroidism and Graves' disease, and um, you decided to take a holistic approach as well as, um, you know, uh, use the Western practices and, and medicine that doctors suggested for you. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why you've chosen the holistic approach and, and a little bit about the history for you, where you were first introduced to it? Sure. Um, but I just want to make one correction. It was hyperthyroid. Not oh, I'm hypothyroid. sorry. Hi, I'm no sorry. Problem. Yep. No problem. I want to get the medical term correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, I've been involved um, from a young age with alternative things because my family – um, were the founders of the first earth shoe company, the original earth shoe company, mm-hmm. in, which opened in 1970. And I was a kid, but because of when it, you know, the, the decade that they opened it in, and it was through my formative years through high school, um, the employees who worked for the store were all hippies, <laughs> who seemed like they were <laughs> way older than me, but they were probably, you know, 23. Right. Um, <laughs> but we were exposed very young on, um, to things like yoga and meditation and macrobiotics, macrobiotic, yeah, macrobiotic diet, sorry, um, and things like that. So it just became part of my life, even though I didn't quite know what it all meant back then. Right. But I had that awareness, and it was a little bit ahead of the time because it wasn't, you know, yoga wasn't on every corner, and Lululemon wasn't <laughs> born yet and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was doing yoga from the book Be Here Now, you know, when I was a teenager. Um, and it just kind of stayed with me, and it made sense um, and was always a part of my life. Um, I was always healthy. I never had, you know, any issues that I needed to worry about until I was diagnosed accidentally in um, um, somewhere around 1994. I went for a routine checkup, and the blood work came back, and they said, you have a hyperthyroid, and I didn't know what that meant at all. And I was told to go to an endocrinologist, and I didn't know what that meant, but it scared me. And I said, okay, no, I'm going to go to a nutritionist and um, because I believe in the mind-body connection. Uh, but I didn't know firsthand what that really meant, but I theoretically believed in it. Um, so I found a former registered nurse who had become a um, kinesiologist and a nutritionist. She left the Western medical profession, but she understood and could read blood work, which I thought was important at that point in time. And I found out that I had a raging hyperthyroid. Uh, that was, it, was very, it was pretty severe. Um, so she drastically changed my diet and my lifestyle and the stress uh, that I was under. She tried to help change that. My father had died a year before I got married, and I started a PR agency all at the same time. So the stress level was pretty off the charts. Mm. Um, stress and a hyper condition is not a good thing. Right, right. So, but it's what I was dealing with, and um, it was very hard to make the transition with, you know, no caffeine, alcohol, sugar flour, anything white, any grains, you know, the list was on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And I was traveling to film festivals and all. It was a very hard lifestyle change, um, but I was determined to do it. But at some point in there, I knew I had to go to an endocrinologist and find out what that meant. Um, after having read all the Western treatments for hyperthyroidism, I thought there's no way I'm going to do this because each one was worse than the other to me. Um, so I finally ended up at an endocrinologist who said he would put me on medicine, which was the one 
of the three options that seemed like it didn't work, but he said it would work. So he put me on the medicine, and within a week I felt better, and you don't know how bad you feel until you actually feel better. Right. So yes. I had no idea how far gone I was until the medicine was kicking in, and, and my numbers got a little bit better, and my sanity got a lot better. Um, because I did feel like I was going crazy. It felt like I had electricity running through my body. Um, I was wired for sound. I, I, could eat, I could eat a house and not gain a pound. Uh, I had energy up the wazoo, but I couldn't sleep on my right side. I couldn't sleep on my, um, you know, my heart rate was so fast. It was, my resting heart rate was over 100. So it was pretty dangerous. But anyway, after a year, my body rejected the medicine, and he told me I should do the radioactive iodine, which is the other major treatment. And I said, there's no way. And I really went down the road at that point of finding as many alternative healers as I could, from acupuncturists to um, continuing to work with the nutritionist um, to... uh, I can't even think of all the kinds of different healers that I was working with, but aromatherapy and homeopathy and just everything. And um, and my numbers were better when I paid attention to stress, like you were just discussing, and diet. And um, when I was doing all those things, I was better. When I fell off the wagon, I got worse. Um, so I saw the direct correlation The doctor basically ended up firing me as his patient because he said I was risking my life. Um, Was that by not doing the surgery? Yeah. Well, he said I would have to do radioactive iodine. When you do the radioactive iodine, you become hypothyroid, and then you have to be on medicine for life, which didn't seem like a good option to me. The other option was surgery, which most people don't do because it's surgery and when you could drink something as opposed to being cut open and under anesthesia. So I said, look, if I'm going to do something drastic, I'll do the surgery. He thought I was crazy. Um, I went to a surgeon who was retiring, who was one of the last few surgeons that actually did that surgery, from what I was told at that point in time. So I just decided, you know, I'm going to have to make this work because I'm not drinking radiation, which you you can't be around kids and plants or animals for a day or something because you're nuclear. Um, wow. So uh, he, he basically told me that he couldn't keep treating me because I was being irresponsible. You know, that was after some years, but um, I said, okay. And then I discovered um, Louise, uh, not Louise, um, what's her name? Carolyn Miss has a book called Anatomy of the Spirit, which I stumbled upon, and it really breaks down the chakras, which I knew about but never paid attention in relation to my health and what was going on with me. And I read the book, and I started, you know, the fifth chakra is the throat, and it's all about speaking one's truth and your voice and owning that and all that kind of stuff. And I started looking at, you know, I got afflicted with something that affected my throat and eyes. So what am I not saying and seeing in my life? And it was really at that point when I became aware of that and started addressing that 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 my healing began because I realized that I wasn't being honest with myself and I largely wasn't being honest with other people. Um, I certainly wasn't owning my voice of who I was. And um, it was a tough journey. <laughs> it was not light entertainment, but, uh, but the healing that came from it was really deep. And um, I made some big changes in my life um, that I think really... Um, helped me heal and get grounded and start owning who I was. And 
my numbers started getting better. And over time, they kept getting better and better and better. Can't tell you the timeline and where that was um, from when I was first diagnosed, but I've just had yet another blood test because I continue to get the, the numbers checked, and my numbers are perfect. <clears throat> um, I never had any radical surgery. Uh, I was on the Western medicine for one year until I was, my body rejected it. And then I had to go on beta blockers for two years because my heart rate was just going way too fast and my holistic healers told me it was dangerous. So at that point I went on that. And then I ended up having two surgeries to correct um, the Graves disease. But for the last, what is it, 20 years, you know, 95% of it has been holistic. Um, but, but like you were just discussing, the integration of Western and alternatives is hugely important. And the fact that Western doctors are finally starting to entertain a conversation about it and understanding that stress does affect your health and understanding that nutrition and lack of exercise does affect your health is great and hopefully will you know, be able to bring forth a better integration of those practices. That's right. That's right. It really is the, you know, it's just so wonderful, the awareness and the discussions that are taking place. And, you know, in our in our pre-interview, Susan, I had asked you, you know, you you used many different, um, I guess, uh, I'm not sure the word to use, but, you know, when you think of integrative and holistic, there's a lot of different things you can do. Mm-hmm. And I said to you, when you incorporate so many, how do you know which one it is is working? Um, and, and I thought it was interesting what you said. You know, it really is the sum of all the parts. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I believe in energy healers. I believe in intuits. I believe in, you know, psychic abilities. I believe in people being able to read energy and all that stuff. Um, at the end of the day, you can't run from your blood. You know, that really does tell your story. So on the bookends of my journey, I, I, I ended up um coincidentally with people that had been on the western side um, and then went alternative so that they really could read blood um, because again your numbers don't lie and, that's right um, the energy is one thing but your numbers could say something very different because anyway so um, the doctor that I've been working with for the last I don't know how many years I've never met him he's in California I was introduced to him through my yoga community and um, he was a He's a biochemist by training, and he became an alternative healer, but he understands blood. He understands formulating um, supplements. He works with a major lab and does his own formulations. Um, what is his name, Susan? His name is Ati Mahan. Uh, Beth, do you know him? He's out of Santa Barbara. Beth, do you know? I just wondered if, if Beth, if you know, if you know him, if you've worked with him. I don't. There, there are so many amazing physicians um, across the country, and one of the one of the things that I'm going to point out, Susan, is that we in in the world of oncology care, for years it was always re, it was always referred to as PAM or complementary and alternative medicine, mm-hmm. and we've really shifted the name to complementary and integrative medicine because the word alternative um, was something that seemed to be a big turnoff to a lot of Western physicians. Um, but the word integrative, where you're saying, I'm not, like you didn't throw away Western medicine. You said, these are the parts of Western medicine that I can tolerate. These are the things that worked for me. These are the things that didn't. So it wasn't that, you know, the beta blockers, um, you know, kept your heart 
in check while you were working on all the other, you know, all the other issues. So it's really about using um, different aspects of both Eastern and Western medicine to me to create a hybrid model, which, you know, I, first of all, I, I love Carolyn Mace's Anatomy of Spirit. There's a whole chapter in my book about it because um, I believe that the, that our, you know, our body holds things in our energy chakras. And so many times I see women with breast cancer and it's not just about the breast cancer. There's other things that are going on. So the fact that you intuitively then figured out you know, through that process, it gave you that gift of true healing because if the hyperthyroidism is a symptom of what else is going on in your body, if you don't get to the to the root cause of what's happening, it's just, you know, you're just treating the symptom, which you can treat the symptom with radioactive iodine and PTU and tapazole and, and surgery, but you got to that real place where you could find true healing and you know, come up with a hybrid process for you, but um, there are a lot of people that, that can't listen to their intuition or don't want to listen yet, mm-hmm. and there's no judgment. It's just that that's where they are. That's but right. Finding, finding, I have an integrative physician that I work with in Australia, and we Skype. I did meet her once in person, but I, I, wouldn't have have to, I wouldn't have have to have met her in person, but I found someone who I resonate with that I can work with, you know, for my own stuff. Um, because that's they're they're on a different path than I am, and I you know I see her as a very enlightened, not just a fabulously Western trained physician, but an amazing integrative and holistic healer who, you know, helps with every aspect of your of your being. Yeah, yeah, great point, great point. Um, real quick, I want to make sure that the listeners know that if they have questions for either uh, Dr. Dupree or Susan, uh, you can call in to 610-664-4100. Um, you know, a big part of Susan's story um, is this holistic uh, topic that we're talking about, and I think it's important to to have her talk a little bit about, you know, her growing up years and how she was introduced to it. And so, Susan, I'd love for you to talk about, you know, your years growing up in New York. Uh, I know that your dad uh, was a photographer and your mom was a painter, and you described your growing up years as non-traditional. Talk for a few minutes about those early years. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in... Um, on 17th Street, East 17th Street, between Irving and Park in New York City, right near Union, Union Square, where my parents owned a brownstone. And um, it was like our little small, our, our small town, the neighborhood back then. That area was not a good neighborhood. It, there was no, no Starbucks, no fancy Union Square Park. And we were just kids trying to have fun in New York City when it was um, not the New York we have now. My mom was a painter, as you said. My dad was a very successful photographer who was traveling all the time. Um, They were entrepreneurial. They were creative. Um, We went to, um, we ended up, starting in fifth grade, I ended up going to the United Nations International School. Before that, we had gone to some other local local schools in in, um, downtown. uh, we were traveling, you know, by the time I was 15, I had already been traveling through Europe twice with my family. So traveling became part of my life very early on. Um, and yeah, I guess my parents were just non, non, you know, they didn't go to an office job. They didn't have a tradition, a conventional career. Um, and then when I was 10, they, they, we stumbled across uh, upon earth shoes when we were on a family trip in Europe. So my, 10 to 17 years 
were all immersed with the Earth Shoe Company, which took off into a way that nobody had ever expected, and, and it was hugely successful with lines down the block. Um, my sister and I were surrounded by, by hippies all the time, you know, all day long. We were running home from school to go hang out in the store with the cool, groovy people. That, you know, we just, like, wanted to be the women, and we wanted to be with the men. Right, right. Um, um, but we always remained, you know, while they took us in, and, and uh, we always remained the boss's daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did form, you know, very good friendships as best as one can because we were young. You know, we were, we were minors at that point. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but Earth Shoes was really, Earth Shoes was very non-traditional. I mean, in the beginning days, um, uh, my parents were giving away the shoes for free when people would come in and say they loved them, but they couldn't afford the $23. I think they were $23. My, my mom was like, take them, you know, yeah. <laughs> come back when you can afford to pay them. And people always came back and brought their friends. After three months of working at the store, you got free transcendental meditation, which Anna Kelso, the inventor of the shoes, insisted that our whole family get trained in TM. So we were the family that meditated together. Mm-hmm. Um, for Christmas one year, the employees bought us a bought us a macrobiotic chef who came to our house once a week to cook us a quote unquote gourmet macrobiotic dinner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so <laughs> we quickly learned after the first week that we went to Zuki's down the street and got. You know, pastrami sandwiches before dinner time because the macrobiotic secretly, right? Quite <laughs> what we had in mind, you right. know. So that was kind of what we were surrounded by, and um, and it was great. It was really great. And then it came to a, a, a tough ending. Um, the company had grown to, I think, over a hundred stores worldwide. Um, you know, there were two, three stores right on my block. They had to divided by sizes because the floor couldn't handle that many people so it was divided by you know up to certain size in one store and the other one down the block um so yeah so that was that was the earth shoe days yeah well you know what we have to take a quick break susan and when we come back i want you to i want to go right into to you being a rebellious child and and if it had anything to do with the unstructure we'll be right back There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear, by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada, and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. 
Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Uh, again, my name is Sue Rocco, and joining us today is Susan Jacobs. And Susan is a writer and a producer and, a, and the founder of Blues on Consulting um, out of New York. And the first half of the show, we were learning a little bit about her background uh, being raised in New York and being the child of the founders of Earth Shoes. I'm not sure everyone is familiar with that, but I'm sure many people are. Um, and I, you know, one of the things that you had mentioned to me, Susan, was that as a child, you know, you felt you were kind of rebellious uh, and writing was was an outlet for you. And I wanted to ask you if you think that kind of the non-traditional household you grew up in um, was a factor in that. In other words, did you feel that you needed more structure or did you embrace that kind of non-traditional um, childhood? I embraced it at the time, but later I look back going, yeah, some structure would have been good <laughs> because <laughs> my family, you know, my parents never put pressure on us. Uh, my sister, who's two years younger than me, my sister Laura, they they really gave us room to be who we are, who we were. Mm-hmm. Um, they never pressured us about what kind of careers we were going to have. They never pressured us about getting married and having kids. Um, so it was very very peace and love in our household. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was great. Um, I learned at a young age that I had some power over them, and uh, I took full advantage of that, no doubt, um, and learned very good manipulative skills okay. <laughs> when I was younger, you know, because I saw that I could get away with stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and it was then always about, oh, but we love you, you know, so... Um, so, yeah, so it, 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 that, you know, and there was never pressure on going to college, you know, becoming, going to Ivy League schools and things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously education was very important, but they just never pressured us like that, yeah. to my recollection. Yeah, well, it's an interesting topic to me, you know, that because, of course, you know, love is is the most important, but um, I think, you know, children do need structure, and it's, sometimes it's hard to find that balance. Yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, at the time when we probably needed that structure, they were immersed in earth shoes. And, yes. Um, you know, and that was a huge undertaking. And, and they were not business people. They were artists. So That's right. That's I think right. They were, you know, and they, I don't know how old they were at the time, but they were trying to find their way with a business that just took off, you know, skyrocketed. Yes, and with very good intentions, right? You know, oh, I mean, the reason they brought that back from, from their trip was – uh, to help people. Yeah, I mean, the, the shoes, just for those who don't know, the, the shoes, um, the heel was lower than the sole, than the toe, and it was modeled after the natural footprint in the sand. So the woman who had invented them, Anna Calso, you know, she had observed people walking in Brazil or something like that, and she, she patented the sole and made these shoes, and they were on, you know, she was selling them in Denmark. She's Danish, and we stumbled across them in, in, on a family trip. And my mom had had chronic backaches since she was pregnant with me. And within a week of finding the shoes and wearing them, her backaches were completely gone. And we had actually been in Europe that summer. Um, they were going to open a light fixture company. <laughs> and we had taken a family trip to Europe to end up in Germany to buy light fixtures. But there was a heat wave that summer, so we kept going further and further north and ended up in Denmark, which was not part of the original plan, and found these shoes. And... As soon as my parents had worn them for a week, my father 
was like, okay, this is our new business. Forget the light fixtures. The <laughs> building that we that they that we lived in had a storefront, which is where the store was going to open. Um, they wanted to talk to Mrs. Calso, who was in Finland testing a new pair of shoes, walking I don't know 500 miles or something crazy, and um, got word to her, and she only agreed to meet with them after finding their hor- getting their horoscope done, getting their charts done and decided that they were astrologically correct and agreed to meet with them because they were also not shoe business business people. So anyway, so the whole thing, um, I lost the point of that, but... Um, well, I but think... That's what, but that's what Earth Shoe was. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, isn't the brand kind of still out there today or is it a totally different company? It's a totally different. It's a totally... They lost the company in 1977 and that's a whole other conversation. Right. Um, I know it had an effect on you. That was... Yeah, you know, it, that's it a was, tough time. Very, very challenging and very difficult for my family. Yeah. Um, but the company closed and um, it was... I don't know. A, a new... I think it's called Earth Brands now or something like yes, that. Yes, I think... It's not it, the same soul. It's not the same look. Yeah. Um, but it mimics... It's trying to mimic what Earth shoes were. That's right. Certainly, you know, shoes have come a long way as far... You know, there's a lot of brands out there that really are about, you know, the anatomy of the entire mm-hmm. body, not just mm-hmm. the foot. Um, let, let's get into your work, um, your, your publicity work. And, and at one time, you were vice president of Worldwide uh, Publicity for RCA Victor Group. Is that correct? Yeah, I had actually stumbled across, oh, I'm sorry, back to the writing, that's what that was. So I always wrote, I was always a writer. Yeah. I did some form of writing, and that was my creative, that was my creative outlet. I have zero artistic talent. I can't draw, I can't, you know, stick figures I can't even do. But writing just was my passion, and I always did it in some form or fashion, just for myself. Mm-hmm. And that carried with me, and it was also my rele- my personal release. Yeah. Journals. I've been keeping journals for decades, which is probably not a good thing. <laughs> that I haven't burned them by now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a great thing as long as no one stumbles upon them, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, um, but then I, I knew um, after I was in college, I knew I wanted to get into the entertainment business and the film business. I didn't want to be a PA. Um, I had no idea how to start. And I was actually temping as a word processor at Mobile Oil when they used to be on 42nd Street. And the boss that I was working for overheard me on the phone some uh, one day talking about how I wanted to get into film. And he ended up connecting me to an employment agency that got me into Columbia Pictures, where I ended up becoming the head of over a job change in there. I ended up um, at the foreign film division doing publicity, which I didn't even know what it was, but it took well, you know, I took to it well because it was talking and, you know, engaging people and writing and being in the film business that way. Mm-hmm. And I ended up um, at a, a a company called Klein and Feldman, which was a, had a West Coast office, and I set up and ran the New York office. And that's where my career really started in PR um, on the film side. And I started working. I did the PR for Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It and Dirty Dancing. And um, I worked with Harrison Ford on the Mosquito Coast and Sid and Nancy. And wow. the first wave of Down by Law, Jim mm-hmm. Jarmusch's film, the first wave of independent films. Um, and and was, you know, that's kind of took off. And I didn't move to music until I had my agency I opened a PR agency from nine, um, in the 90s, and I had it for seven years with a partner, and we expanded out into music at that point because supporting a company on independent film in the 90s was not possible, <laughs> um, foreign and American independent film. 
and one of our clients was Sony Classical, and after seven years when through my raging thyroid days, <laughs> um, <laughs> we decided to close the company, and I ended up going over to Sony Classical, where I, I had that title, VP of Worldwide Publicity. Okay. Um, and then I went over to BMG, where I had the same title. Right. And, you know, Susan, there's, that's, that's exciting work, certainly, and, you know, you worked with a lot of high-profile high um celebrities and musicians and and companies and as well but the flip side of that is it is very high pressure uh, and stressful and you know at at some point you decided to walk away from that career can you talk about what precipitated that move yeah um i loved it i mean i had i had a great career and i did it for about 20 years uh pr is pretty tough it's it's relentless it's you know, you're the first blamed and the last thanked, mm. uh, which is fine, but it gets tiresome after a while. And for me, I used to always get a rush when I got placements, when I booked somebody on Letterman, when I, you know, opened the New York Times and the piece that I got was in there. And I got that rush for a long, long time, and that's what kept me going and really seeing how the, my work was helping transform people's careers. Obviously, they had to have talent for me to be able to do my job, but then seeing the impact you know, when I got Spike Lee, his first arts and leisure piece in the New York Times, I mean, just it transformed his life, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. it was huge for him, and it was great for me as as a publicist. Right. You know, so I did that for a long time and, you know, had all these major placements and whatnot. And then after a while, it's like, okay, I don't care about that anymore. And then I started going a little bit inward and going, okay, you know, I'm helping all these people realize their dreams, their creative dreams, and what about me? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I just found that I got lost in it, and I felt like I was living other people's lives. I would go and, you know, to the fancy hotels, doing the press interviews and being in the limousines in the days when we had expense accounts and flying first class and going to the Grammys and doing all that stuff, but then I felt like, a, you know, I turned back into a pumpkin. Right. And I was back on the subway with my Metro card, and it's like, okay, this is my life. I'm not living their life. Mm -hmm. And while it was great, it just after a while, I just needed to do something different. And I was burnt out, too, because it is relentless, and it is very high stress. Mm -hmm. um, so I decided to walk away. It's, it's an interesting decided, perspective. Yeah, yeah it really I, is. Uh, yeah, and I, I had to do it. And it was also part of my healing with my thyroid because that was still going on during this whole period. So that also was part of the precipitating of me making that decision. Right. Um, you spent some time, Susan, in Haiti. And and I know that that um, had a had a great effect on you. I wanted to I wanted to offer a quote that um, I assume you live by. It's on you know the um, bottom of all your correspondence, mm -hmm. and it is uh, I think the real miracle is not to walk either on water or in thin air, but to walk on earth. And I wanted to know if that is something that kind of came to you from your work in Haiti, or if it's separate, and and what that means to you. Um, what that means to me is, you know, life is really precious and, and it's challenging and we all get caught up in our storyline and we all get caught up in the daily nonsense of nonsense and non-nonsense. And, um, I just use that as a reminder that we're all, we're all going through a human experience 
and we're all presumably trying to do the best we can and be the best people that we can. And getting up every day and facing the world, you know, it, it, that's a lot of work. You know, there's a lot of stuff that comes with that, and there are a lot of um, bumps along the way and highs and lows and all that stuff. So that quote to me just kind of really says it all. Mm-hmm. Um, I've traveled. I've, I, when I left BMG, I went to Ghana, and I spent two months there, and I did my kundalini yoga teacher training over there. Um, I got malaria on the ninth day, and I was minutes from dead, and an Ayurvedic African doctor saved my life. So the time that I was in, in Ghana was really profound, and it was my first time in a developing country. Wow. And when I came back, I ended up starting to go to Haiti, and at a time when Haiti was not cool, <laughs> was not, you know, uh, on the radar. It was only on the radar in terms of the most dangerous place in the Western Hemisphere. The poorest, and I don't know, I forget what the tagline that was in every article, but it was the poorest, I, yeah, it was something like that, poorest and poorest country in the Western Hemisphere or something. Um, so when I started going to Haiti in 2000, in beginning of 2005, it was really sobering. Um, ironically, I had my 13th birthday in, in Port-au-Prince. We had gone on a family vacation. My birthday's around Thanksgiving. Um, and I ended up years later staying in the same hotel that we had stayed at when I was a kid. Um, and I had vivid memories from when I was 13 down there and, uh, and what it looked like in the hotel, and there were similarities still years later. But being in those developing countries, it just you know, slapped me hard in the face for the obvious reasons. But the thing that I wasn't expecting um, – was the incredible generosity of spirit of people that have nothing to give, mm. but their spirit and their kindness. And, you know, and what they had to give, they would give. And, you know, as a white American, it was hard for me to be incognito or inconspicuous in Africa and in Haiti, mm-hmm. um, especially, again, with Haiti at that time when people were not, there were very few, there were no tourists, no tourists virtually, and any any um, non-Haitians were, you know, aid workers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way I saw people living in the poverty and uh, it, it, it was, it was, it was an eye opener. Yeah. I, I um, can't imagine that something like yeah. that not having an effect on you. Um, yeah. Beth actually had wanted to talk to you for a second about Haiti. She had, mm-hmm. uh, had a question for you. Beth, go ahead. I've, um, I spent, uh, multiple different uh, medical missions in Haiti and some other third world countries. And um, my favorite Haitian saying um, is santé c'est richesse, which uh, translates into our health is our greatest of wealth. And we take many things for granted in the U.S. And both of my children who've gone with me have realized that um, there is definitely a spiritual richness in countries that are um, overwrought with poverty. And there's something that was so spiritually profound about those experiences, and I think it, you, you totally touched on it where it, it, it touches your soul. You, you meet people who have monetarily nothing um, but have spiritually, you know, ascended beyond so many souls that we walk to earth with in the U.S. And I walk around every day in the United States seeing people who are, um, monetarily wealthy but spiritually bankrupt mm. and there, there's just something so profound about that experience and I can't imagine I didn't do that when I was 13 years old um, I didn't go there to my adult life but realize the importance of taking my teenage children 
there to have that experience. And so it, it clearly has to have raised your vibration as a human um, to be in that energy at that age. Susan, were you able to, to, uh, to hear what Beth said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when I was 13, it was just a family trip, so I don't know what impact it had then. But when I was older, you know, I spent, I was there every month from, for four, almost four years, going back and forth, doing all sorts of crazy business stuff and driving from north, south, east, west. And I have crazy stories about the experiences down there at that time, again, because it was when all the kidnappings were happening, kidnappings were happening, and it was not the place to be hanging out as a, as a white American. Um, but it just touched my spirit, as she said, and um, I really saw, um, I really believe that every white American um, should spend a day in the life of somebody in a developing country. Yeah, you know what, and, and a lot of people don't have an opportunity to do that. That's why I think people who do, like yourself, to share those stories, you yeah. know, is really important. Yep. Yeah. Um, I want to, you know, we don't have a lot of time, so I want to make sure that we talk about what you're doing today and this new business and, and your goals for Blues On. Um, okay. What I'm doing today is a little bit of this and a little bit of that. <laughs> Aside from this radio show that you're, you're doing Aside today. Aside radio show. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm a writer now, and I finally changed – changed my verbiage to I'm not a publicist I, I used to say I'm a publicist and a writer I'm a producer and a writer and about a year or so ago I changed and I'm like I'm a writer and because I am a writer and that's what I do and that's who I am and I'm finally owning that um, I've been published a handful of times in the Kundalini Yoga magazine I just had a piece come out in um, a magazine called 429 I write humorous personal essays um, I have a book publishing deal with the Roundhouse Press, and I have a chapter in a new book that's about to come out called Pain, Passion, Purpose. That was then, this is now. And my chapter is called Hooked on Healers. Um, I'm one of 22 authors that contributed to that. And I'm working on, for the Roundhouse Press, I'm working on a book about my holistic healing journey with my thyroid and uh, a memoir. So, um, so I'm really putting energy into that, and I'm also doing for hire work as a writer, as a writer, mm-hmm. you know, PR, marketing, branding, website, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I also still produce. I produce events. I produce campaigns. I produce strategies. I produce. Um, I now seem to be producing films. <laughs> <laughs> and is that something you can share with us, or not yet? I think I know that you're involved in, uh, you know, the, the early stages of a film yeah there are two there are two documentaries that are in the very early stages and then there are a couple of non-documentaries that are also in the very early stages um but it's funny for as as we talked about briefly on the phone you know because i've done so many different things it's always been hard to actually sum up what it is that i do right the easiest way for me to say it is i connect the dots and i make stuff happen yeah you know I, i just make it happen and people started telling me well you're a producer you're a producer and i resisted it and resisted it and resisted it because i always associate producer with film yes and then when i really started thinking about it i was like you know what i i i am a producer yeah um and it could be any of these things you know um so and building out, you know, sitting home and writing full time by myself, day in and day out, would make me crazy because mm-hmm. I'm very out, outgoing and I'm social and I need to do and I love doing events and I love 
creating campaigns and experiential campaigns and all that stuff. So I'm trying to balance those two worlds now. And so far it's working. What, what would your advice be, Susan, to, to a young woman if she's listening and, and she's thinking about going into the, um, you know, publicity industry um, with regard to, you know, that that whole aspect of, you know, the, all the focus then really is on the client. And uh, I think you have to be a certain type of person to do that kind of work where you're not neglecting your own personal goals and, and fulfillment. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very true for any career. You know, I've considered going in-house to, you know, being a consultant is stressful. You know, there's a lot of ups and downs. You're in perpetual, I'm in perpetual hustle mode. You know, you're either hustling to get work or you're hustling to do the work or you're hustling to figure, you know, you know, it's always, it's a hustle. Yes. Um, By the same token, if you work at a job, you're still balancing, you know, trying to balance your own personal space and boundaries with that. So I... I would say this advice is for anybody, whether it's in-house or um, or independent. It's really um, being very clear with your boundaries and what you need in your personal life. For me, I need yoga and meditation, and I need to write, um, and I need quiet time. And I've had to figure out how to say no to things, and I've had to figure out not how to not jump and react to every single thing in the second that it's happening. You learn as you get more experienced where that line is drawn between you have to react and you can postpone, you know, for a few hours. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that really just holding on to that, if you need to work out at the gym, make sure if you have to get up at 5 in the morning to do it, you do it, you know, just so that you don't lose that. Because when you start letting those things go that keep you happy and sane, it just falls apart. And also being really clear, I wasn't, I didn't really know how to set goals. I didn't understand um, that goals need um, deadline, intention, and measurability. So I would say, okay, I want to, you know, I want to lose weight. That's not a goal. I want to lose five pounds by June 1st. That's a goal. So through all this, I've had to learn that and be very clear with what my goals were, both personally and professionally, mm-hmm. and constantly rechecking them and, and making sure that what I'm doing in my daily life is aligning towards those goals and continuing to adjust that on a daily basis sometimes. Yeah. Don't you think we get better at that as we get older? Absolutely. But yeah. it's still, you know... It's still hard. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I think it's, it's something, hard. you know, you have to remind yourself every day, right? Yeah. It's it's funny because I've become, I've been a salsa dancer for the last six years, and Friday nights I go salsa dancing. And everybody, clients even started knowing, okay, Friday, yes, we know. She's going to SOBs, she's salsa dancing. We don't <laughs> talk to her on Friday after. I mean, it's now everybody I know is like, oh, it's Friday, don't even think about inviting her. <laughs> oh, it's Friday, you know, unless it's a band she doesn't like. And that's been great because that makes me so happy, and I need to do it. And when I don't dance, I get a little, you know, my stress comes back, so I've I've been very strong with that boundary, and now it's just fun because people respect it. You yeah, know, yeah. You know, I love the story of why. You, can we talk real quick? The story of why you're interested in salsa <laughs> and the Latin dance. Oh, <laughs> because of where I came from. <laughs> where you where you came from? Literally, um, right? <laughs> yeah, because my dad was a photographer and always traveling. Um, my parents wanted a baby, but 
to make a baby, as you know, you need to spend some time together. <laughs> so because he was always traveling and because my parents were non-conventional, they decided to take a trip to Cuba. I'm not going to say the year, but people will probably figure it out, um, <laughs> to have a little vacation to make a baby. Yeah. And so I was conceived in Havana. Um, one of my first salsa friends is Cuban, and he calls me Made in Havana. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds but, like the name of a song, Susan. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, but I was, my parents are, my dad from, was from Brooklyn, and my mom was from the Bronx. So I was made in Havana, but I'm 100% American. But I have no doubt that salsa music must have been playing or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's ingrained in you. It is ingrained in me, yes. Listen, um, Susan, we just have a moment left. I want to make sure that uh, for the listeners, if they want to get in touch with you, um, you know, f- for any reason, and, of course, to uh, to work with you in any capacity, what is the best contact information for you? Um, I guess email at Susan at B-L-U-E-Z-A-N consulting.com. Okay. And... Uh, and if anybody's out there, anybody out there is dealing with hyperthyroid issues, I would be happy to um, talk about that as well. Okay. Is there information regarding that? I guess that's going to be a separate um, site for you, or um, will you be working on a newsletter for that? What what type of thing? What type of platform will you have for that? I'm in the process. It's not up yet, but my but you can keep your eye out for it. Even though I don't have a holding page up yet. Mm-hmm. Um, my Blues On Consulting website is really about my marketing and event producing um, projects, but I am setting up a new website called Susan Jacobs Writes, Susan Jacobs, W-R-I-T-E-S dot com, right. which will be um, samples of my, you know, my PR writing, um, my published writing. You'll be able to buy um, whatever books I have from there, and I'm also going to start blogging on there, and I will be blogging about thyroid issues okay. as I start diving into that. Okay, terrific. So and I'll be, be, I'll be sure to share that. And that'll be linked that. to Blues On as well. Okay, great. I will share that with the listeners. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today and telling your story. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it, too. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. I thank you so much for tuning in and listening, and I hope you have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park